So we're in this series called Living in Worship, and it's been an exciting thing for us to be thinking about. It's such an important element of what we do. We spend a lot of time together in worship. I'm going to retell a story I told before that for me is, is kind of a, a sign of how this works, and, and that is I was in Haiti uh, over our vacation and uh, working with a pastor there. His name is Pastor Elise, and we were just getting to know each other, and you know, I liked him, but I didn't really know him much, and um, on one particular day, he was taking me out to uh, the orphanage, and we were driving, weaving through crazy traffic, dodging you know, motorcycles and giant trucks and everything, but inside the car, he was playing worship music. And we were kind of talking, but he kept interrupting the conversation to sing along with the worship music. And it was on the radio, he didn't even know all the words sometimes, he would hum, and then if he knew the word, you know how when you're singing and you try to like anticipate the word, you know, he was doing that. Uh, and he was just full voice singing and worshiping and off key, you know, but it was beautiful. And I said to myself, as I, I got this little precious window into his heart, this is somebody I can follow. Yeah, I can work. You just tell me, Pastor Elise, what you need me to do. And I'll do what I can. Because I could see, you know, the sincerity of who he was and of his deep love for the Lord and how it had transformed his life. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an image for me that makes me help think about our church and, and how we worship. When we gather like this, you know, what's going on in our hearts and what do people see happening inside of us? Do they see that rawness kind of wearing our heart on our sleeve that God has done amazing things and, and we just can't help but praise him? and worship Him. That's what it means to live in in worship and to be a community that lives in worship together. And that's why this series. So we can cultivate, caretake this important element of who we are as people. Everybody is made to worship something. And we're always going to come up empty and short until that worship lands in the right place. And that's what this is about. Now, we've got some instructors for us. Um, they're called the sons of Korah. They're in the Psalms, and they're, I guess, some brothers who were the sons of a guy named Korah. And they wrote a bunch of Psalms, and they were the caretakers of the corporate worship in Israel. So they know a thing or two about worshiping together. And they are our guides in this journey to help us to understand what it means to worship. Now, they bring up some different things, some, some unique traits and and qualities of worship that maybe we didn't anticipate before. And so we're letting them lead us. Um, In particular, today, um, they're going to cause us to think about an element of what it means to be a community of faith that maybe we didn't think about previously. So when I uh, think about the history of the church, there are times when God has, as we would say, just moved in powerful ways that people experience the presence of God, they come to faith, the, you know, unique things happen. We call this revival in the history of the church. And one of the most powerful experiences that I have ever read about is what happened in Wales. This is one of those historical experiences in in around, it was 1904 when it started and then continued on. It seemed like God was doing something special in the church in Wales at that time. And people who were there recorded what happened. And you know, uh, you know, gambling like disappeared. Um, alcohol use went down by 50%. P- 
people owed each other money and they started just spontaneously paying each other back and making reparations for the things that they had borrowed and stolen and all of that. Um, even the soccer games disappeared. People stopped playing soccer, which was, nobody was preaching against it. It was just that everybody wanted to get together and pray and worship. And they just didn't show up for the soccer games. And this is my favorite part. The mules in the mines in Wales no longer could understand their owners because the owners were becoming Christians and they, were, they weren't swearing at the mules anymore. And the mules didn't understand their commands because they were absent the swear words. <laughs> Can you imagine? Hey, Joe, I thought you finished. I thought you were a Christian. You weren't swearing now. Yeah, but I can't get my mule to move, so I have to swear. He doesn't understand. They had to retrain the mules. I was trying to think of an example of what that could look like in our day, and I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with bumper stickers. I don't know. Um, somebody comes up with a good example of, a, of, of the modern equivalent of that. Let me know after worship. But it's, it's a time of transformation, and, and God seems to be working, and, and, and maybe you have a different um, experience with that, or you've heard of one. But there's also the opposite kind of season, a season of dryness, when people, um, this doesn't seem like God's moving, and, and, and we keep praying and worshiping and doing all the things, and, and, and nothing seems to happen. And the psalm that we're going to look at today is, is about that dynamic. And it's about the community of faith and how we respond when there's dryness. When we're hungering and longing for God to do something spectacular and we're waiting. How does that shape the way we worship? That's what the psalmist writes about. So would you open up with me to Psalm 44? Psalm 44, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll hand one to you. Um, We really... If you're around us, you'll understand that we really value the Scripture as the Word of God, and, and so we want you to have that available to you so that you can follow along today. And, and if you need to take that home, please do. Put it by your nightstand. Read it throughout the week. Psalm 44. This is one of the psalms of the son of, one of the sons of Korah. It's to the choir master. It's for corporate worship. How do you worship in a season of dryness? Oh, God. We have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. So he's remembering back to when God did great things. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them, our ancestors, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. It's as if the the people of old said this. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Those are the glory days. But here's what he's experiencing now. You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You made us turn back from the foe and and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. 
All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All of this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our bellies cling to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So thankful for the kind of rawness that these psalm writers bring in their relationship with the Lord. I've got four questions for us to kind of get in and understand what this psalm is about. The first one is simply, who is this psalm for? Who is this psalm for? Now we know, of course, it was for Israel in that day, the nation of Israel, that was the people of God. Who's it for today is my question. And it would be tempting to apply this psalm to a country. It uses the word nation. And so we might think, oh, he's talking about nations. Maybe he's talking about my nation. And there's, there's a temptation. And we can look at what's going on in our nation and all the political upheaval and the, the unrest and, and what I prayed about with respect to the racism. And we might say, we might use some of these verses to say, God, why have you abandoned our country? But the contemporary recipient of this psalm, that is the person that this is written to today, is not a particular nation such as we have today. It's not America. It's really written to Israel, who are the people of God, and today to the church, who are the people of God. We are the people of God. And so we have to receive it in that context. The psalmist's hope is not in a future political entity called the United States or or anything else. It's in God and his people. And this brings up my second question, and that is for all of us, where do our hopes lie today as we're facing the troubles that we face in our world, whether they be the individual ones or the ones we've been talking about on the collective side? And I sense in conversation with many Christians that there is a deep frustration with the church. In fact, Some of us, I hear us talking about how I can't believe how my brothers and sisters voted this way or did this thing, and people on both sides of the political fence are saying this, and we're wondering, is this going to tear us apart? What kind of division will this result in? And that dynamic is undermining many people's sense of hope in the people of God. But when that frustration causes us to start losing hope in the church, then we have a problem. However awful it looks, at this moment or any other, Jesus and his people 
are the hope of the world. That's what it says in Ephesians 3.10, and it's still true today, that, 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 that through the church, God is manifesting His wisdom, His manifold wisdom, to the principalities and the powers in the world. In this broken, sinful world, the beings who exist with God from all eternity, shouldn't say it from all eternity, from His creation of them, had been watching to see how God would resolve the sin problem and the brokenness in our world. And, and, and they've been waiting to see. And God's solution to the problem was to enter into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, to take onto Himself all the sins of the world, to die an atoning death on the cross, to be raised again as a demonstration that in fact He'd overcome sin and death, and to establish a people who would place their faith in Jesus Christ as the people of God, who are the vehicle through which the good news is proclaimed to the world around us. And so they become the hope of the world. And this is true no matter what it looks like on the outside. And so one of the important things we have to remember as we study a text like this, we can't let the world, the enemy, trick us into losing our hope in the church as the people of God. So that leads us to the next question, which is this. How can the people of God be the hope of the world when we're such a mess? Have you ever caught yourself daydreaming about what the church could be? I know you have, because after you do the daydreaming, you write me an email about it (laughs) and give me instructions on how I should make the church that way. No, I appreciate your input and feedback, um, but I'm, I don't have the power that I wish I did sometimes to, to make the world that, um, that God would want. Um, this is the interior world of, this, of the psalmist. He is um, lamenting what is in relation to what could be. So in verses 1 and 2, he says, I've heard of the days of old and how things were, God, and how you moved and how amazing it was and how you know, people saw your power and your, your, your glory in the midst of the people of God. And then in verse 9, this is our situation now. You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. But you know, we try to go out and do things and it's like we're just doing it in our own strength and you're not there and we fall flat on our, flat on our face. In fact, we're in the dust on our bellies, defeated. Where are you, God? When are you going to rise up and work through your people and bring transformation? Verse 19 gives us an image of what he is experiencing as he thinks about the people of God and where they're at at this time. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. I think of the National Geographic uh, documentaries that I've seen where they show the jackals and there's just bones on the ground in some desolate place and there's, there's nothing left. And, and that's what he feels like as he surveys the current status of the people of God, the place of jackals. It could be so great, but it's not. The disconnect between what is and what could be is too great. And so he says in verse 12, you've sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, 
the derision and scorn of those around us. And some of you living in the Bay Area, being uh, the beleaguered minority at times, if you consider yourself a Christian, you might be feeling this. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So, one of the messages is that God is saying to us today, to you, is if you've ever felt this way, if you've ever, you ever been frustrated because you look around at your family or maybe your local church or maybe the church at large, and if you've ever said to yourself, why isn't it what it could be? Why is it falling so far short? If you've ever been frustrated, you're not alone. You're not alone. That's what this, this psalm is telling us, that, that God knows what it's like to think about what could be and then to be living in what actually is and how far sometimes apart those can be. But he's saying to us as well, don't let that frustration cause you to lose hope in my instrument for bringing about change in the world. The people of God, as they depend on God, are the hope of the world. And that hasn't changed. So what would it mean for us, my fourth question, to fulfill our potential? How do we fulfill our potential as the people of God? And the first answer to that comes in verse 17 and 18. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Now, there was a season in the life of Israel later on when they did turn away from God completely, and God um, executed what's called the exile, when he allowed the nations around them to, to run, overrun Israel, and they were dispersed. And it was, the, it was because of their disobedience. But this is a, a moment in time when they're actually being faithful to God. They haven't turned away from God, and yet they're falling on their faces and they're still failing. And it reminds us that one of the sort of foundational, initial ways that we grow in to God's potential for us as the people of God is simply by obedience, such as they have done. There are all kinds of texts in the Bible that call us to live in particular ways, whether it be from our understanding of what it means to carry out biblical justice, as we studied a number of months ago in a sermon series, or to be the kind of people who are quick to share the gospel, engaging in evangelism, and everything in between. Um, And this is part of what it means for us as a community to live into our potential. Now, when we were studying the biblical justice series a number of months ago, at the end of that, we invited you all to raise your hand or fill out a card and and say, I want to be a part of moving in this world to say yes to God's commands on on what it means to live out biblical justice. And so we said, you know, if you want to help fight against human trafficking, put that on there. If you want to help addressing homelessness, put that on, put your name down and, and make that. If you want to uh, support our, a crisis pregnancy center, put your name down and you can be a part. And we're calling each of these little groups platoons. And so we have identified leaders for them and, and some of them are in progress. 
And this is part of what it means for us to live into our potential, to, to read the scripture and say, oh God, you want me to take care of the poor and the downtrodden and the outcast and the unborn and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You want me to take care of those. So I'll say yes to that and I will actually get involved. And if this morning you didn't get a chance months ago to get involved, you can get involved by writing down on your comment card that sign me up. I want to be in one of the platoons. I want to help out in one of these areas. And this is part of how we, we grow into and live into our potential, the potential of the people of God. We've also been going out and doing some evangelism. Uh, Miguel, in his way, calls it OG evangelism. Um, those of you who are younger know what that means. It's original gangster, uh, I guess is what that means. So um, everybody laughs when I use the word OG. I don't know the term. But uh, simply to go out and to share the gospel. So these platoons are at work. And you are uh, invited to get involved. And it's part of how we as the church grow into the potential that God has for us to be carrying out his work in the world. So it's by obedience. How do we fulfill our potential? By obedience, but also by trusting in God. There's a great lesson for us in verses 4 through 8. Look at that. Uh, In the old days when they were being triumphant and God was working, He says, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. And listen to this. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. If you want to grow into the, if we want to grow into our potential as the people of God, we have to trust God to work in and through us. There's a great temptation for all people to become self-sufficient, and especially when things are going well, right? We forget. When everything's a mess and broken and we don't have any strength and we're, we're happy to be dependent upon God. But when things are going well and we're moving triumphantly, we find it more challenging to depend on God and to not become self-sufficient. So what are the bows and the swords that we tend to grab onto and to put our trust in today? And I would say where we're living in this place, it would be education or wealth or privilege or our intellect or whatever it is in that vein that we can so easily put our trust in and we begin to lose the real power, the real strength, which has to come from God. So as the people of God, we're called to live using our bows and our swords, but never ultimately depending in them. Always depending on God. Always depending on God. So we fulfill our potential by trusting in God. We fulfill our potential by calling on God. I love verse 23, which is such a raw request of the writer of this psalm, a plea to God. And remember, this is something that would be sung by the choir, apparently, in the corporate worship, where it says, awake, they're calling out to God, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. In the corporate worship setting, they call out to God together and say, would you move in our midst? Would you 
Show yourself. Would you come? Would you act? Would you reveal your goodness? Would you move in our midst? And they even, they, 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 they make this cry based on a couple of criteria. First of all, verse 25, God's love for his people. Because he basically says, look, we're, verse 25, our soul is bowed down into the dust. We're wrecked. Our bellies cling to the ground. We're lying in the dust. Our souls are wrecked. We know you love us, so please act on our behalf. That's the basis of their plea, crying out to God that he would awaken and move in their moment in time. But they also rooted in the character of God, verse 26. God, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In other words, you're the kind of God whose character is impeccable, your love is steadfast, everything you do is perfect, so if you work in our day, in our place, people will see who you are and it will bring more glory to you. So work, God, please, wake up, come, and move. It's a great way to pray. To pray God's attributes back to him. God, I know you're merciful, so have mercy on me. I know you're loving, so will you love this person? David understood this in Psalm 25. He says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. You could just imagine David in Psalm 25. He just just feels it all. He says, I have no basis upon which to ask you to do anything, God, except for who you are. Because you will bring glory to your name by doing this. And imagine what God does for his namesake to pardon guilt. He takes on flesh, enters into the world, lives in the grit and the grime and the danger, loves the unlovable, the outcast, the downtrodden, the leper, teaches, makes his way to the cross eventually, and building on the entire Old Testament understanding of sacrifice and atonement, He offers himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin on the cross so that all who would place faith in Jesus would would have the wrath of God that was previously aimed at them placed on Jesus instead. Was it not only the most physically pain? painful place for him to be, but spiritually he was separated from God like nobody has ever been before. This is what God was willing to do for his namesake. And then Jesus was raised from the dead to demonstrate the victory over death and so that sins could in fact be pardoned. That's, what, that's the extent God is willing to go for his namesake, so it's a great way to pray. Lord, for your namesake, By the way, if you're visiting with us or maybe you're exploring the things of the faith, everything that I just said about the person of Jesus being God incarnate, coming into the world, going to the cross, making atoning, that's like the center of everything. If you're exploring the faith, if you're new to this community, just know that's the center of everything. That's where it all begins. The question of who is Jesus to you is the most important question of any that I asked this morning. And the Bible teaches us that the way we respond to the question of who is Jesus is by faith. If if we're saying yes, we put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and it's it's the beginning, and then it becomes the middle and the end of our relationship with God. 
who, where we stand with Jesus Christ. And the way that, that we respond is by faith, by putting our faith. So, so that's a parenthesis just to make sure we keep the center thing, the center thing. And if you respond in faith today, God hears you. He knows his atoning sacrifice is applied to your life. You come and take communion when we celebrate that this morning. You get involved in the community, and, and we all grow together. It's a beautiful thing. So I invite you to it. It will change your life. It will change your eternity. God is willing to do great things for the sake of his name. That's what we learn. And so when you pray, and when we get together as a community, and, and, and this, this psalm teaches us, when we get together as a community, we're supposed to call out, God, work in our midst, move in our midst. For your name's sake. This is why I've been saying on our Facebook page and different places, I keep putting out little tidbits with this series. People, let's get here on time. Let's sit towards the front. You did so much better this week than last week. I really appreciate that. Let's sit towards the front. Let's be eager. Let's let's show God by the tone of our posture that we are grateful for who he is and what he's done in our lives. Let's worship. And allow that to, to transform who we are. Let's plead with God. Would you wake up? Would you work in my broken life? Would you work in our broken community? Would you work, work in the broken community around us? This is the plea that becomes part of the corporate worship of our community. So we fulfill our potential by being obedient. That's base stuff. And we're never going to be perfectly obedient. We always have to rely on the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. But our intention is to follow his commands. We fulfill our potential as a community by trusting in God and not relying on our own bow or sword or whatever else we might put our trust in. And we fulfill our potential by calling on God. Lord, wake up. And then there's one more. We fulfill our potential by remembering God's ways. And and I almost put in the word his mysterious ways. Sometimes the people of God are the hope of the world, not through their success, but through their failure. This is such an important truth to to know about your life and about the church. Sometimes, maybe more than we realize, we become the hope of the world, not through our successes, but through our failures and our struggles. That's what verse 22 says. Yet for your sake, for the sake of God and his, His big plan, His redemptive plan, for your sake... We are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, the Apostle Paul understood this verse on a very profound level. And in Romans 8, he quotes it. I'm going to invite you to turn over to Romans 8. And we'll see something very sweet about this verse that he quotes. And what it means for us as the people of God. Romans 8, verse 35. Paul writes this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, this should sound familiar, it's from Psalm 44, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says this, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, it is often through the the failures, the struggles, the inabilities um, that God accomplishes his greatest things. This is a very important spiritual truth that we've got to absorb. If we're going to grow into maturity, we have to get this settled deeply in our souls. You know, that, very, that thing that you didn't want to happen, that you pleaded with God that it wouldn't happen, or, or that change that you hoped would happen and it didn't happen, and you pleaded with God, you said, if you would just do this, and you think God is not working, it just might be in his mysterious way that in fact it's through that very challenge that you're facing that God is accomplishing his greatest work. Whether it be you or in you and beyond. When you can't, when you're, when you're, when, when, when what could be seems so far away you can't even see it anymore. Because your what is is so broken and, and and you feel so weak and so trapped in it, and you can't even see from, from where you is to what could be, right? And you think, God has forgotten me. What this verse says is that no, it just might be, in fact, oftentimes it is, that this is where God is doing his greatest work. Even in those darkest moments in the failure when what could be is so far away from what is. God is still on the throne. And what he teaches us is that nothing of our suffering will be wasted. Not one drop of it. He uses it all to achieve his ultimate purposes. All of it. So when Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We might not see it, but we believe it. God, would you minister to each one of us in this room today who looks out and sees what could be and then evaluates what is and and just feels like the, the chasm is too great for all the suffering that is going on, for all the weakness and the frailty and the seeming futility. We write over all of that this beautiful banner that we've been given. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. More, we don't just conquer. There's something more through him who loved us. God, would you help us to fulfill our potential as your people? We, we know we, we really can't do anything, actually, except depend on you. So help us to trust in you. Help us as you enable us to obey you. 
Help us to call on you in prayer together and individually. And help us to bow before the mystery of your ways that you might be glorified in our humble lives, in this humble community. You might do great things for your name's sake. And that name is Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in that name. Amen.